Hello, welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today my guest is Joel Bakken, law professor turned writer turned documentary filmmaker here to talk about your enemy and mine, the corporation. Well, I just want to say how excited I am to speak to you because I'm, with this Pod Songs project, I'm interviewing many different people, many different issues. But after watching the corporation and the new corporation, I realized there's only one issue, and that's the, the corporations. So how did you come up with this? Because you had this eureka moment that it's like corporations if have the same rights as people but if they were class if they did a personality test what kind of personality do they have and they're psychopaths so that's kind of a that's a, a eureka moment that people grabs people so where, how did you come up with that yeah so i'm a I'm a law professor by trade. That's my day job. So I study the corporation as as a legal institution. And indeed, corporations don't exist in nature. They, they, they're purely created by governments, by legislatures, by courts, and by law. And what the law does is two things. Well, it does a number of things, but the two things that are important for us here are number one, it says that corporations are to be treated by the law as though they were persons. Uh, so this, this is quite a common understanding that we all know about corporate personhood and all that. But the second thing they say is that corporations and their directors and their managers always have to act in their own self-interest. They're not allowed to make decisions for the sake of other people or the environment or social justice or any of that. They always must act in their own self-interest. And what the law means by their own self-interest is value for their shareholders. So they always have to make money for their shareholders. That is their legal obligation. That is their legal imperative. I had done psychology as uh, an undergraduate. And so when I was sitting in my corporate law class at law school and, and thinking, this is very interesting that the law has created this artificial person and then it's imbued it with a personality that says it's only allowed to act in its own self-interest. Uh, if that were a real person, it would be a psychopath. That, that is the definition of a psychopath. So that was kind of the germ of the idea. And then I played out that idea in the first book and film, which came out in 2003, 2004. And then I returned to that idea most recently in my new book and film, The New Corporation. And the basic idea there is that over the years, corporations have become more powerful, more dangerous, larger. They've taken more control of our society. They've wreaked more habit, the havoc, the issues that we looked at in the early 2000s have all gotten worse, whether it's inequality or climate justice, pollution, worker exploitation, all of it. And, and in 2011, the American Psychiatric Association added a new criteria to its psychopath checklist, which was charm. And 
So at the same time that corporations have been causing more trouble in the world, they've also tried to tell us that they've become better, that they are sustainable, that they are socially responsible. And so the penny drop for me there, that really this is just a psychopath finding its charm and trying to seduce us to let it take power over us. Wow, because the first documentary, I mean, that was, it was set, was it 17 years ago? Something like yeah. that? Yeah, it was a long time I mean, ago. Yeah, and, and it was a success. I mean, it really hit home. The, 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 the people in power really, it, it touched a nerve, no? And they, Dude. and it also galvanized the, the grassroots of so people started asking corporations to behave better and that it filtered up to the CEO. So it was a success, but now you have to make this unfortunate sequel which no that's absolutely right i mean i think in some ways we we were part of the cause of the problem that we now address in this new right film. yeah you in the sense that you know and and it really it was really interesting because after the first film and book came out i i was getting a lot of calls from people in the business world and i thought that they would be wanting to yell at me and say, well, you called us psychopaths, you know, we're pissed off at you. But instead, what they what they did is they said, you called us psychopaths, thank you. Thank you for, you know, letting us know that we haven't been good. We know because we've seen all the people in the streets of London and Prague and Seattle, the sort of anti-globalization protests. We know that there's a problem. We're getting the message and your film kind of consolidated the message for us. So thank you for diagnosing us. We now have the cure and we're now going to fix things. Mm. And so you see around 2005, like almost just a year after the first film and book come out, that there's this, this massive course correction with big international companies, multinational companies saying we're going to be 100% sustainable, recycling, renewable energy you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna put out less waste, we're going to use less water, fewer resources, we're going to be good to society, we're going to promote equality. And so that is the new corporation that the title is referring to. It's a, it's a very explicit and very self conscious course reset. The problem is that despite all of that, the actual institutional nature of the corporation didn't change at all. Mm. And and that under this guise of this kind of new goodness, corporations became even more adept at gaining more power at pushing for privatization at pushing for deregulation at pushing for more tax cuts at pushing for more impunity and more power so so ironically or maybe not ironically maybe hypocritically is the better way to look at it this embracing of goodness actually amplified the degree to which they could do bad because the subtitle of the book is good, how good corporations are bad for democracy. Right, which is exactly that. So, so when people, perhaps a lot of conspiracy theories, people say, I don't know, just pick one, but it's, it's actually the system working properly. This is what they're supposed to do. Yes, I'm, I'm not a fan at all of conspiracy theories. I think that in addition to conspiracy theories, sort of paralyzing us because yeah. they sort of they leave no room for us to act as citizens because you know there are five people in a smoky room uh, a dark smoky room plotting the course of the world and we're never going to be able to get at them 
so I think that's one problem with, with conspiracy theories. But the other problem with conspiracy theories is that they presume a level of organizational ability among human beings that I don't think exists. Mm. They presume that those five people in the dark, smoky room, that one of them isn't going to blow the whistle or see some other advantage. It, it, it presumes a kind of degree of cooperating in evilness that I think uh, human beings just aren't capable of, fortunately aren't capable of. I mean, you see evil regimes, but they always fall apart because there are people within them who, who, who find them to be wrong and do something about them or blow the whistle or whatever. So yeah, you're absolutely right. My critique is not at all about conspiracy. It's about a system that, in effect, we've all uh, been complicit in creating corporate capitalism. And when it is working properly, what it is supposed to do, I mean, the word capitalism, I think, is important because what it suggests is that the entire system is supposed to be oriented to the production of capital. And capital isn't just money lying around. Capital, you know, as contemporary economists, Karl Marx, you know, Adam Smith, all others recognize is the difference between the investment that you make, whether as a worker, your investment of labor or your investment of money as a capitalist. And, and what's produced out of that is the kind of extra, the surplus value, as Marx talked about it. That's what capital is. So, and, and so that is basically profit and growth and all of those things. So capitalism is a system that its entire teleology, its entire goal is to make that, is to produce capital. And so if that system is working properly, it will produce as much capital as it possibly can. And in order to create capital, you need to do what you know, Schumpeter called creative destruction. You need to dig things out of the ground in order to get at the gold. You need to destroy uh, the environment to get at the gold. You need to harvest things from the land. You need to take land and turn it into agriculture. You need to take water from streams. So you need to take, take, take. You literally need to extract. And you need to extract labor from individuals. So that's how you create capital. And, and when that system is working well, it's built in that it will be destroying, it will be exploiting, it will be harming in the name of creating capital. And when you put corporations into that, capitalism doesn't need corporations. Adam Smith's conception of capitalism did not have major corporations. It had the, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. But when you put corporations into that, you put a very powerful legal tool into sort of massively magnifying the capital production process. And when it's working properly, it is not paying attention to social and environmental goals. It's producing capital. So the best we can hope for from the system is that in its pursuit of capital, it may throw a few crumbs to the peasants. It may, you know, respect environmental and social values a little bit, never in ways that will cause it not to be able to create capital, but a little bit on the way to making capital so that the peasants don't revolt. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I was in another song, I, was, I wrote about the tragedy of the commons and the, yes. the nature, 
yeah, nature's worth more dead than alive. And that's probably that's the... so. So, do you sing as well? Yeah. Can you sing a song? Ah, uh, sure. I... Nature's worth more dead than alive. It's a race to cut down the trees before somebody else does. Yeah. Right on. But, yeah, but uh, your your wife's going to sing this song. Is that right, Rebecca? Rebecca, that is that is the plan. Rebecca is a. I'll introduce her now, but she'll come and, and introduce herself later. She's a Canadian film and TV actress, but also a, a well-known singer who I, I play jazz guitar and, and we have an act together and we make albums and they're up on yeah. Spotify and things like that. So Fantastic. yeah, she was part of, I, I mean, in Canada, there was this very fertile scene that produced people like you know Joni Mitchell or were sort of around the edges Neil Young Leonard Cohen all of these sort of great Canadian acts and there was this ferment in Toronto called the Queen Street scene which had bands like the Parachute Club and it's sort of anthemic Rise Up which is an activist song and Jane Sibbery another artist from that time who toured England recently, actually, and the UK. And, and Rebecca sang with, with those bands and was part of that whole scene back in the day. But she's, and she also made a film called Bye Bye Blues back in the late 1980s, where she played a jazz singer and so did her own singing in that. So, yeah, so, so that she was a lovely fun. voice. Yeah, yeah. Wow, thanks. Maybe we yeah. could do a jazz, I haven't done a jazz song. We're doing all different styles of music. So we've done well. If if rock. do you, do you play jazz? No, but okay. It's just it's all about the it's about the rhythm, isn't it? So yeah. If you yeah. send if you send a song, we can we can jazzify it for you. <laughs> Fantastic! That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I haven't sure. had it. I've had a guest play um, an instrument that on on the song before, but never but never full production like this. Like we could do. Yeah, what we can do is we can we can record it. We do a lot of duo work with me, sort of on my jazz guitar and her singing, and we can record it for you in in a nice way and send fantastic. It off. <laughs> so, how do you how do you go from was it did Rebecca help? How did you go from being a law professor to a, the, I mean, I can understand writing a book, but how did you go to making a documentary? And it's fantastically put together. And you're not you're not like Michael Moore, who's you know walking around. You're not the front man. You're, mm -hmm. you're invisible in this. No, but, correct. I mean, yeah, it's kind of you stitch it together so well. So how did you, how did you do that? So, so for the first film, I was the writer, and it was directed by Jennifer Abbott and Mark Akbar, and edited by Jennifer Abbott. So my job there was, in terms of the stitching together was to provide sort of the, the broad framework of the ideas and, and the argument. And it was really Jennifer's editing that stitched it together so well. Right. In the second film, I played a more active role because I was not only writer, but I was also director and, and directed with Jennifer Abbott. She was my co-director. But so she came on a bit later. We'd already done some of the shooting of the film. And I spent basically a year sitting in the edit suite with Peter Roick, who is a brilliant, brilliant film director, 
am piecing together this film. And it, it was a great wow. challenge. Wow. Yeah, yeah, because partly because while we were, after we had thought we had finished the film, the COVID crisis hit, right. and we felt we needed to incorporate that into the film. And so that added time. And, and then when we thought we'd finished the film again, the Black Lives Matter protest in the wake of George Floyd's brutal police killing hit. Right. And we felt again, we had to open up. We'd locked the film. We had to unlock oh, no. it. And <laughs> yeah, so we locked it twice. And due to the way events unfolded, we had to unlock it. And so that's why it took a year. <laughs> and again, it was really a combination of having a very sort of strong thesis and argument and thinking about how, I mean, as a lawyer, I kind of think about how do I how do I put the witnesses' testimony yeah, together to create the case? Yeah. And this was effectively a prosecution of the corporation. And so, so it was really a question of lining up the, the different sort of witnesses and the various stories and telling them in a way that, that really nailed the points down while Peter, the editor, was was sort of making sure that the visual and the sonic and the emotional and Jennifer, my, my co-director, that the, that the sort of filmic elements were really, really working. So it was a great combination of, of sort of research and writing and storytelling that I could bring to the table. And, and then the more filmic sound and graphics and just images and emotional cadence that Peter and Jen could bring to the table. And, you know, the result is, I think, a pretty watchable film on a very heady set of ideas. Because I heard, it, heard you describe it as a zombie movie that you inspired, mm. that you start off with a, the, you know, the suburbs and everything's okay. And then... No, absolutely. It, it, I mean, it, it was, you know, I am a film buff even though not a filmmaker by trade. And I've always loved the narrative arc of zombie movies because they're, they're incredibly hopeful. And, and, and this film, I sort of really wanted to model on that because zombie seems to be the right metaphor for this idea that the corporation is good now, that it's just, it's, it's, it's fake, it's not real. Mm. And so, yeah, you start out in the bucolic suburban town with, you know, the, the paper boy throwing the paper onto the porch and, you know, all those kind of actually really American images of, of the bucolic small town with the white picket fence and the big porch and all of that. <laughs> and, and everybody's happy and Joe is at the barber shop and, you know, the candlestick maker and the butcher and the barber and the baker are all happy in this town. And it seems totally bucolic. And for us in this film, that was Davos. That was the World Economic Forum meeting in, in the film where everybody's like, oh, corporations are great and the world is good and we're going to save it. And, you know, that the whole corporate social responsibility, we should feel happy and good. And this is a nice town that we're in. And then in the zombie film, the second act, it turns out that that barber, Joe, is actually a flesh eating zombie <laughs> who's masquerading as a human being, as are a lot of the other people in the town. And the zombies reveal who they really are. 
you know, their, their, their skin comes off and the, the nasty business of being a zombie comes out and, and, and they wreak havoc and they kill people and they destroy the town. And so that's the second act. And you get to the point of absolute despair where it seems like there's no hope. And that's what happens in our film too. And then the third act is, you know, you find there's this group huddling in the basement of a church mm. of human beings who have managed to escape the zombies and, and they're like, you know, they're hiding out and they start talking and they, they, they say, you know what, if we pull together collectively, if we organize our collective power, we can, you know, we can push back, we can beat these zombies back and we can win. And they do that. They, they organize, they go out there, they fight. And that's our third act in the film where we see kind of democracy coming back and trying to contain the corporate beast. And it's like in zombie films or like some zombie films, our film, it's left uncertain. It's left with a lot of inspiration, but we don't know who wins in the end. We know that there's a huge inspiring movement to for the people to win out over corporations. But we're left hanging a little bit. Wow. We're left with hope and inspiration, but not a final answer. So that key was to go to get to to Davos. I mean, how did that, how was that? I heard you got, you, is it Klaus Schwab you? Yeah, Klaus Schwab is, is the person who, I mean, most people, sort of not everybody knows what Davos is. So suffice it to say, it is a town in Switzerland where every year, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a ski resort and lovely, lovely yeah. place. And and it is the site every year, except for this year because of COVID. But every year from about 1971 for a massive meeting, the sort of meeting of all meetings of the global elite, meaning not just the heads of corporate and finance, but the heads of government. I mean, prime ministers, presidents. In 2018, Donald Trump was there. The prime minister of my country was, was there. The prime minister of your country was there. You know, it was, it was just a, a, a massive, it's a massive elite meeting and it happens every year. And it is the kind of party of the year for the global elite. And civil society groups are there too, trade union movements, environmental movements, all that. So they all come together. And as I sketch out in my book and film, the basic idea is an idea that comes from the founder and still current head of this whole thing of the World Economic Forum and the Davos meeting. And that's an economist named Klaus Schwab a German-Swiss economist named Klaus Schwab. Uh, and he's been doing this for, for 40 years. We, and, and what's interesting about Davos to me is that it really is the, it, it is the sort of symbol of this idea I'm talking about. It's all about how corporations are going to save the world, how corporations are going to become better citizens in the world. It's like that is the theme. And it follows from Klaus Schwab's idea back in the 1970s of what he called stakeholder capitalism, the idea that capitalism shouldn't just serve capital, but it should serve the environment and workers and the people and society. That was his idea. And that idea is very much the animating idea of 
this entire new corporation movement, which, you know, inclusive capitalism, connected capitalism, creative capitalism, green capitalism, social, like all of these modified capitalisms are kind of variations of Klaus Schwab's original idea. So we applied for media credentials to get into Davos and were told, I mean, it was one of the quickest responses we got from anybody anywhere. It was like, no, you can't come in. We don't give media credentials to documentary crews, only to broadcast media outfits. So if you're CNN and you want to do a piece, fine, but not some independent production from Canada. So, so that was a, you know, a, a bit of a problem. So I thought, okay, well, I genuinely would like to talk to Klaus Schwab because he is the kind of godfather of this new corporation movement. And so, so I approached him through his World Economic Forum office and said, genuinely, I want to talk to you. Had he, had he, had he, seen, had he seen your previous film? And he had, and, and he had seen the film, he had read the book. I mean, he's, you know, very, wow. I mean, that film and book were kind of de rigueur for anybody in the space because it was the criticism out there of the corporation. And so people like him would, would watch that film and read that book and they would say, okay, yeah, Bakken's right. And we're now solving that problem. And I think he would have seen it that way. And And I came to him with an open mind and said, I want to talk to you. Like, are you solving the problem? You know, I wasn't in any way dishonest. And he seemed intrigued enough. And he invited us to New York for an interview. And so we jumped on a plane with a crew and went and interviewed him. And after the interview, I said, you know, you're the head of this whole Davos thing. Surely you could invite us, even though your media people have said no, because I would really like to follow up on this conversation and see you in the water in which you swim. It's very flattering for him. Yeah. 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 And he's like, okay. And uh, off we went to Davos. And what was it like? Because, you know, these people are, they, they believe us, no? They believe. Yeah. They believe. And to me, that is both the most hopeful and dangerous thing. It's hopeful in the sense that it's a beautiful thing that as human beings, we, whether we're Klaus Schwab or whether we're Jamie Dimon or whether we're John Brown, the former head of British Petroleum, some of the people who are in the film, Bill Gates, it's a beautiful thing that we strive to be good and to do good. There's just something really good about that that as human beings, we feel the need to do that. And and so when people really believe they are doing that, to me, that's hopeful. That's better than people intentionally manipulating and deceiving us to believe they're doing good when in fact they know they're doing harm. These people believe they're doing good and don't think they're doing harm. They believe that their vision of a better society is our best hope. The only problem with their vision is it has no place for democracy. And, and I'll return to that in a moment, but, but they're sincere in their beliefs that it's a better vision. That is also what makes it so dangerous because if they were just faking it, if they truly didn't believe that they were doing good, then it would be much easier 
to push back against it. Then you just lift the veil and what you see is the zombie underneath. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> that's obvious. Like you're not fooling us anymore. But in a way there is no veil because they're caught in their own mythology. <clears throat> so they really believe they're doing good. I, I don't, I have, I believe Bill Gates is very dangerous. I think he has way too much power in the world and he has a vision of the world that is radically undemocratic and unjust. But I believe he believes he's doing good. I think he's probably a pretty nice guy. Mm. And and I think that's the same for all these guys. I don't think they're they're sort of fire breathing, you know, nasty people. You know, there's a film out there and a book out there called Assholes. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen no, it. No. It might be another another interview for you i can imagine an interesting song with well as the song title's taken care of yeah exactly but the thesis of of this book and film and I, the name of the author is escaping me now and i apologize for that but the thesis is that there are people who are just assholes mm -hmm. and that the world is in trouble because they have too much power and and i i just I just don't agree right. with that. I, I think the problem is much deeper and more profound and problematic than that. Because if it's just a question of people being assholes, you know, that that's fairly easy to deal with. You, you, you know, you put yourself on guard for assholes, you make sure that the shit doesn't float to the top mm -hmm. and, and you deal with that. But the problems, as I think we show in the film and book, are much more deep, deeply structured. So I want to make one more point. I know I'm talking a lot, but I said before that this new vision of the world, the new corporation vision has no place for democracy. And that's a very, I realize, a very strong claim. And there's a point in the film and in the book where I think the point, that point lands. And it's a point where I'm in Davos and I'm interviewing Richard Edelman. Richard Edelman is the guru of all gurus in the business world. He has a company called Edelman and they consult with all major corporations and governments too and they talk about where the world is going what is happening you know they really have cornered that sort of business guru market and they do public relations and all of that so if you just google edelman you'll see they're huge i've never heard of and they're in every yeah they're in every city they have an office in my city of vancouver in london and you know they're they're all over the place they're kind of like McKinsey and Company in terms of which is another business consulting firm. So these are kind of the firms that that businesses rely upon to to help set their courses. So so Richard Edelman is the guy who started this and the brains behind it. And I ran into him in the town square in Davos, and I had my camera operator with me, and I stuck a microphone in his face. Said, "Would you do an interview? This is what we're doing, you know, blah blah blah." And he's like, um, he's, "Sure." And so I wanted to tease out a little bit what his beliefs were about corporations. And basically he told me, we're at a point now where corporations are becoming good actors, where social responsibility is no longer just some kind of peripheral thing, but is becoming a core commitment of companies. And as they become good actors, he said, they can fill the voids left by retreating governments, which he could have added are in retreat because big business has been pushing them into retreat for 40 years mm. through lobbying. 
but I just added that in my own head. He didn't say it. So they're going to fill the voids left by retreating governments because they're good actors now. And so I said to him, well, there's a bit of a problem with that. And that is whatever else you say about corporations, even if they're the most benevolent institutions in the world, they're not democratic. They don't represent anybody except for their shareholders. They don't, they're not accountable to anybody. They're not responsible to anybody. This whole notion of democracy that we've developed over the last two centuries just doesn't touch them at all, except in their relationships with their shareholders. But shareholders aren't citizens. They're a small group of people wealthy enough to invest. So, so he said to me this, and this for me is when the penny really dropped. After I said that, he said, you know, I'm not much of, and it's in the film and the book, said, I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship. I believe in the power of the marketplace. And I was like, boom, caught right there. There it is. Corporations are good. They can fulfill, they can take over the job of governing from governments. And political citizenship, aka democracy, is now in the rearview mirror. And markets and corporations are to take the mantle, wear the mantle of governing society. That's why good corporations are bad for democracy. It's because that ideology inevitably is part of the push for corporations to become better. So corporations have all these rights as individuals, but they get lots of fines, as you've said in your, but have they, have they ever been dismantled? So it's a really interesting question because, I mean, one of the really interesting things that we always need to keep in mind is that corporations were not created by God. They're not part of nature. They're created by governments. And so that, that means two things. One is when you hear all this talk about free markets, you have to understand that is absolute bullshit. Nobody wants a market to be free because a market can't exist without a massive infusion of government power. Where, where do we get property rights from? They're, they're not writ in the fabric of the universe. Property rights are created by the courts. They're enforced by the courts, by police, by military. Where do we get contract rights from? The same thing. Where do we get corporations from? From the pens of the drafters of legislation, from corporate registries that are part of the state. So. The entire market system, the entire corporate system is created by government and the state. So the idea that, you know, markets are about not having the state is, is absolutely absurd. And anybody who's honest and intelligent in the realm of economics, politics, law, anywhere else, that you cannot have markets and corporations without a massive intrusion of the state. So when people say we don't like government, we want freer markets, Margaret Thatcher, you know, that whole idea, or Prime Minister Johnson, you know, whoever, Ronald Reagan, I mean, these are the sort of the rogues gallery of this view. When they say, you know, government's the problem, we need freer markets, all of that, that is absolutely oxymoronic mm. because without massive involvement of the state and government, you could not have a, a so-called free market system. So what people are asking for when they say we don't want government is they're saying we don't want government to restrict 
the, the other things that government does. So government creates property rights and enforces property rights. We want government to do that, but we don't want government to impose environmental restrictions on how those property rights are exercised, or we don't want government to tax us. We don't want government to do those things. So it's not about government or no government. Mm -hmm. It's about how government does what it does. And, and so the whole idea of free market is absolute myth and, and it's a dangerous myth. Mm -hmm. So that's one notion that comes from this idea that, you know, from your question, can government dismantle a corporation? One implication of government making corporations is that the notion of free marks is ridiculous. A second notion is that if governments make corporations, they can unmake corporations. And, and so, but they don't typically. They do in some... Have they ever? Have they... Yes, yes. They, they have in some very... Usually it's if a company is a small company that has gone bankrupt or has uh, not paid off its creditors in some way, typically a very small company, it will unincorporate so that you can go through a judicial proceeding. But never a big um, company like... Never a big company, no. Though that is that is possible. And some people say that's what needs to be done, but I, I'm not sure it solves the problem. It, it goes, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, mm. but there's a real intricate relationship between big companies and capitalism as it exists today that we can't separate the two. We can't just say we're going to make these big corporations disappear and everything will be fine. Well, just as a punishment, um, just as a headline, you know, if you like Exxon or so, one of the worst actors. You know, the, the problem is, and the reason courts don't do it is because the implications would just be so, I mean, even Enron wasn't decertified. It was fined, its leaders went to jail, all of that, but it continued to exist as a corporate entity. And part of the reason for that is that if you evaporate the corporation, then you also no longer have an entity that those who have been harmed by it can sue. So it, in, in Enron's a good case that you actually needed a corporate entity to continue to exist in order to fulfill oh, okay. the legal liabilities that it had created. And, and you can spin that logic out further that if you sort of destroy a corporation, all the pensioners hmm. whose pensions own shares in that corporation will suddenly lose their money. So because the tentacles of these large corporations are so broad, it's just that the implications of getting rid of a corporation, the workers would be out of work, oh, the yeah. pensioners would be out of pensions. It just, to unwind a big company like that suddenly through some kind of a judicial order would just be too consequential okay. for too many people who weren't really at fault for what the company was doing. But it seems they want the best of both worlds because they were always lobbying for lower taxes, but then when they want a bailout, they go to the government and then they, the government, they're too big to fail, no? Absolutely. And that is that is the problem with our system. And it underlines the point we were talking about before. You know, not only do they rely on government to create them, not only do they rely on government to create markets that are advantageous to them, but then when within that system they fail, they rely on government to bail them out. So, so, it is an uh, absolutely, but but it goes back to the point we were talking about that 
if your system sees the main goal as creating capital, then it's always going to be intervening in ways that ensure the creation of capital is not interrupted. Has a business owner ever and that's capitalism. Yeah. Has a business ever owner business owner ever come to you and says, I was thinking of incorporating, but I saw I read your work and I realized what a terrible mistake it would be. I'm just gonna stay a private company. Well, here's the thing. I mean, no. <laughs> and and I mean, you know, you can look at people who might have done that. And I think of uh, a, a sort of British Dutch company named Unilever, which was run by a CEO named Paul Pullman for many years, who was at the forefront of this corporate social responsibility movement. Then there's a small company from Vermont in the United States called Ben and & Jerry's. And Ben and & Jerry's make ice cream, and most people are probably familiar. And Ben and & Jerry's are all about sort of ecology and environment and social justice and all of that. that. They sold to Unilever. I mean, so, you know, I mean, they were a private company. And it, if if not, if if they didn't sort yeah. of think yeah. about it, and, you know, they, they got probably hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe tens of millions. Yeah. I mean, I think there are many, many examples, especially in the high tech space of companies that seem to be very socially minded, selling out to Apple and Microsoft. What's the biggest company that we'd all know that is not a corporation? So, so let me just be a little, let me be a bit of a law professor here. There are no companies that are not corporations because by definition, it, where you're sitting in England, when we talk about a company, right. we mean, we mean an entity that's been incorporated. Okay. So, but this, and, and no large enterprise can operate in the economy without being incorporated. They need person basically, in order to assume legal obligations and in order to have legal rights. So even, even the company that made my film is a tiny, tiny company that was created just to make the film, Grant Street Productions. And we had no choice but to incorporate because nobody would give us investment money, including public entities, government agencies that fund films. They wouldn't give us money unless we were incorporated because they needed a legal entity to be able to sue if things didn't work out. And I, as a creator on the film, want to be incorporated. So if things go sideways, investors can't come after my house okay. and my, my bicycle, you know? So, so there, there is a, a place for incorporation, but the real issue is what is the largest company that is not publicly traded that that's the real dividing okay. line because if you are a company that is private you can decide how you want to balance profit and social value so you have no shareholders you, don't have you. you have no shareholders so you don't have any fiduciary obligation and there are some companies there's a company uh based in the united states called cargill C-A-R-G-I-L-L, -L, which is a huge food company that is not publicly traded. And, you know, there are various examples in tech of companies that get quite large before they go public. And what, where these companies differ from a publicly traded company is that they actually can make decisions. They're free to make mm. decisions about how they balance business values with other values. 
the the truth is though that most of those companies operate very similarly to publicly traded companies in terms of prioritizing. So profit. you've not got a great example of a ethically the most ethical company in the world. Yeah, and you know, I mean, Patagonia arguably is a fairly ethical company. It's not publicly traded. It, it's an example that's often used, but at the same time, you know, they run into problems mm. too. Mount, Mountain Equipment Co-op is a big company, but it's a cooperative, which was recently bought out by a private equity firm. And private equity firms are another piece of this, and that is they're, they're firms that are not public, but they have vast pools of capital, and, and they've been buying up a lot of companies. And so technically, those companies are not publicly traded. But the private equity firms run on a very profit-driven basis. So, you know, and, and that gets back to the point we were making about capitalism, that when you have large companies, be they publicly traded or not, operating in a capitalist system, for them to get financing, in other words, take you, you could have a company with the, the greatest ideals in the world, let's say Patagonia. But Patagonia needs to get financing. You know, no company can operate without. So it goes to the bank. And the bank looks at its business plan. And the bank will not give it credit unless its business plan is one that comports with making a return. And so even though now it doesn't have its shareholders looking over its shoulder, it has a for-profit bank looking mm. over its shoulder. And, and so, so you can yeah. see that as long as we're in the system where everything is oriented towards the creation of capital, it's going to be very hard to escape that imperative. So you, in, the, in your work, you say the democracy that is the solution and we should, we should apply our, use our rights as citizens to, to curtail these corporations. How can we do that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what we as citizens need to understand is, is that we have power to address these kinds of issues of corporations having too much power, of markets being too pervasive and too influential, of corporate values being too much the values that we're supposed to all serve, that we can do something about this. I, I don't necessarily believe we shouldn't have markets in society. I don't necessarily believe we shouldn't have corporations in society. What I do believe is that both of those need to be seen as tools, mm. not as ends in themselves, but they see, need to be seen as public policy tools. Corporations were invented in order to finance railroads in Britain, the modern corporation, because for the first time with the steam engine, there was a possibility of creating large, large enterprise. It was no longer just a mill on, a, on the river Floss, but you could create these massive steamship enterprises, factories, railroads. And so you now had a need for large pools of capital to create those. And it was that need that was met by creating the corporate form. That's why governments created it. It's basically a financing tool that enables you to go out to millions or hundreds of millions of people and get a little bit of money from each of them, shareholders. And you do that by legal 
breaking the link between ownership and management. And, and so I don't want to, again, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but suffice to say that the corporation is a very powerful tool for financing large scale enterprise. In our current world, given technology, we're likely going to have large projects, whether it's airlines or, or computer companies or whatever, we're likely to be operating at a fairly large scale and corporations are a fairly good way to to raise finance for that. And markets are a fairly good way to organize production in society. But again, they have to be seen as means to the end of providing a good society. There is such a thing as society and we want it to have equality. We want human rights to be respected. We want climate change to be addressed. Those have to be the ends and the means we can use markets and corporations as public policy tools for helping us achieve those ends. And it's democratic governments that have to be mediating all those competing interests, not uh, non-democratic companies or authoritarian governments or whatever. So the, the suggestion at the end of the film and book is that we try to re re understand recreate what democracy is to really build in a robust commitment to social and environmental values to see democratic government being very much twinned and and symbiotic movements for a more just society for an environmentally more sound society. And so we look at examples at the end of the film of, of those kinds of, of movements. But I think it is really re-democratizing democracy. Mm. And sort of the idea in the film, we start with the Occupy movement and the idea in the film is we need to do more than occupy the streets. We actually need to occupy democracy. In fact, that's what democracy is supposed to be is government occupied by the people. So that's what we need to get get to. I was going to say get back to, but we were never really there. You mean like on a local <laughs> level or, or, or national? I mean, I think it has to happen at all levels, but we do sort of talk about it in the film as, and we look at some local politicians in the film and we talk about what, what one commentator talks about as the urban renaissance, which is this, movement of progressive governments and local authorities sort of getting elected. And, and, and so the idea as one sort of progressive city councilor in Seattle, Shama Sawant talks about it is, is that you can start at the local because it's doable and, and then, you know, work higher. But, you know, I think people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, you know, tried whether ultimately with much success, mm-hmm. but but I think tried to move in a direction that was different and in opposition to the kind of neoliberal ideas we've had for 40 years. And and I would say, I mean, I say not totally successfully, but I think some of what is happening now in the United States with the Biden administration is very much connected to the energy that was created with the Sanders move, with people like AOC and whatnot. And the hope is that, you know, that sense that this pandemic has brought us, that 
we really are in crisis and 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 moving from just the pandemic and thinking about climate and all these things and in a positive way thinking we really need collective solutions public solutions we can't rely on corporations to get us out of this yeah they may play play a role they may you know help create vaccines and things like that but ultimately the policy the ideas the leadership has to come from our democratic governments and there are some fairly encouraging signs that that's happening yeah because i mean we we think we when we think of things is we can't imagine things changing can we but i mean in my lifetime i remember thatcher and you know campaigning for privatization how it was much more efficient and you Mm -hmm. know selling off everything and but then in in your first film you talk about how how it used how fire fire engines for example used to be used to be uh, in the in the private sector so if you had a plaque on your wall from that like health insurance in america now you could get the fire engine to come so so we can we there is the power to change these things and bring them back into the public sector and and reform the system that it's not it's not just because the corporations are winning now it doesn't mean that it has to stay like that no you're absolutely right and and i think that is it's a fight it's a struggle but that is it's a, it's a struggle that i think can be won and let me introduce you it's 10:45 to hello rebecca. rebecca hello pleased to meet you good to meet you too yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like such a fun idea oh thank you well we have it's a very challenging idea oh. <laughs> so i'm just listening through the earphone what i was said that? it's a very challenging idea i mean to make a documentary was difficult enough i mean it took him a year but i think this song could, could take me longer <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> do you do you two want to talk at all about what the yeah, song that, might that would be, be great? Like? Yeah, yeah. And also awesome. yeah, and also what it was like to has it been difficult to live with Joel over this past? Have you <laughs> seen much of him? Actually I I've actually no, he's always he's actually always uh, around. I thought he was in the editing suite, I you mean, know, locked away. Well, I was in the editing was, suite. Oh yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, during the making of but it wasn't so bad. I don't know whether that's good or not. It wasn't so bad. No, <laughs> no it was all right. I'm very, I'm very good at uh, disciplining myself not to work all the time. Yeah, he and, is. And to work efficiently when I am working. And it, I, I really, Rebecca was just an absolute inspiration, support. Ooh. Could not have made the film nor written the book. She edited the book. She has a real ear for for language and writing so she edited the book and and was constantly giving me input on the cuts of the film and so yeah i'm just absolutely indebted (laughs) but you learn so much i mean from when your partner's doing something i'm sure it's the same when you're in a movie that that your partner learns so much kind of osmosis no especially when you're editing the book yeah it's it's really true and honestly it's not hard to edit joel's work it really isn't he (laughs) He does so many drafts first. He just works it and works it until it's to a place where really it's not that hard to edit. <laughs> so have you, what have you, are you more of an activist now? Have you, are you energized more than you were before? I'd say, I'd say particularly after this last book. Yeah. I mean, laying out because it just lays out so broadly and the, the big, the huge, the big ideas. And I mean, the first book too, but yeah, it just deepens. Mm. It just one's one's understanding of it. And that's what 
it's when you understand that's that's what activates you. Because we've all drunk the Kool-Aid, no? I mean, your friends must also think the same, like, because the, they're very persuasive, the arguments of, of corporations and sustainability, the language they use. I mean, it's all, we've all adopted it as well, no? This is very true. It's very true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. What have friends, have they commented as well? Friends and family like it, like it, and, and see it as as a revelation. I mean, I think it's because we all do find these ideas so compelling, which is a very positive thing. It's a very positive thing. Yes. And I say this in, in the book more explicitly than in the film. It's a very positive thing that people are drawn to this. Even though it's mythic, it's very positive that people are drawn to it because they they yearn, mm. you know, so they're looking for the right, they're, they're looking, they're following the wrong star but their reasons for following it are right. If if they're sort of drawn into the idea that corporations are going to serve up these values, they need to read my book or watch the film. But but the fact they're drawn into them is a beautiful thing. Because it's the Kool-Aid, isn't it? It's a much better thing than if they were Because all, the, all, all these ideas, like I heard that littering was even invented by companies and, and the whole re recy recycling, the, to, 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 like you say, yeah. externalize the costs because that's what they're doing. So you don't yeah. even know it. it's not labeled as Kool-Aid, you know, it's, it's incredible, you know? No, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just hoping this project and your song and Rebecca's singing of it will, <laughs> you know, will set everybody well, straight. Well, I think, I think I was wrong to say that a song is going to do it. I think we need to do a whole album. All right. Well, I'll get to thinking about a song and you guys can jazz it up. We will. Good. Looking forward All to right. it. Nice to nice meet you. Nice to meet you. you. Thanks so much for taking the time <laughs> to chat. Okay, you take All care. Right. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution Was meant to free slaves from persecution, yeah But corporations shouted, hey, we're persons too We want the Constitution's rights for all we do the same rights as me but they don't eat they don't breathe why do they need liberty mm -mm. especially when you see they have the psychology of a psychopath oh boy i see a change is coming the people have had enough I see a change is coming It's time that we call the blood We know what the fight will be We gotta reclaim democracy hey, yeah. Reclaim democracy
Psychopaths have built a toxic world They feel no guilt, remorse, zero empathy No, no They cause climate change, social inequality Destroy the earth, corrupt democracy mm -mm. And too high a sense of their own self-worth I'm surprised they don't boast of having a virgin birth Yeah, yeah I feel a change is coming The people have had enough I feel a change is coming It's time that we call their bluff We know what the fight will be We gotta reclaim Democracy Hey, yeah, yeah Reclaim democracy Create the world we want to see Reclaim democracy We know what the fight will be Reclaim democracy Reclaim democracy. Reclaim democracy. Democracy, yeah. Reclaim democracy, yeah. Democracy. Okay, jazz time. Set myself a bit of a challenge there. So I need to make some more jazz music and find some more guests in this area. The project keeps growing and growing. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Rebecca, for playing on that track. Fantastic. And also to Mauricio Sanicola for producing it, Massimino Vodza for playing the drums there, and Luigi Falcione on the double bass. Also an honorary mention to the Ethereum Society, the teachings of which have led me to start this project, serving the service, helping those who help others. You can learn more about the society at ethereus.org or listen to my new podcast, The Mystic Cast, which also is also available at podsongs.com. And you can get the songs there and stream the songs anywhere, Spotify, Deezer, iTunes, all the usual places. All right, please spread the word, tell your friends, have a great day. <laughs>